Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. We're over the the halfway point, working our way through this book. I don't know if we're halfway done with the series, um, but we are halfway through the book now, and we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 7 in its entirety tonight. Or maybe I should rephrase, I'm going to read Nehemiah in its entirety, chapter 7, and you are going to be glad that I'm the one reading it, and not you. You notice we have a running group uh, that's starting in the bulletin, Uh, hopefully you saw that. Uh, If you want to learn how to train for a half marathon, uh, Gary Butcher is heading up a group that's going to teach you how to do that from scratch, come with no experience. And it's a way also to reach out to the community, it's really neat. Um, Gary's done this at a previous church, and he gets lots of... Uh, I got lots of people from the community to come and get to meet the church. Um, and then I was thinking about, this is my marathon training. It was reading chapter 7 about 20 times this week. So forgive me that even still, I will not be able to pronounce all these names correctly. But Nehemiah chapter 7, the word, the living word of God. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed... I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes." The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mespereth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 652. The sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Binui, 648. The sons of Babai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonai Kayam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashem, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Haref, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem, and Netufa, 188. The men of Anatoth, 128. The men of Beth Osmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerem, 
Chephorah and Beeroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. The sons of Sana'a, 3,930. The priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, the sons of Hadova, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padon, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Rei, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gezam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Besai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephushasim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hekufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basleth, the sons of Mehadai, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hittipha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jaala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hetel, the sons of Pokereth, Hazabaim, the sons of Amon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Cherub, Edon, and Emmer. But they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Dakota, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and who was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now, some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest's garments, and 500 minas of silver. 
And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Uh, This portion of scripture reminds me of the uh, credits for the end of a movie. And I think it's universally agreed that that's the worst part of the movie, right? Is the credits. If you're watching a movie at home, as soon as the credits start scrolling, you turn the TV off. Um, Or, um, you know, if you're watching it on... Um, like it's, it's playing on, on, a, on a network, TBS or TNT or something, as soon as the credits come on, they shrink down to a tiny little screen in the bottom corner, and the next show starts playing. Like, nobody cares about that. Same thing if you're watching on Netflix, right? Five, four, three, two, one, next show's on. They don't let you watch the credits. You can't watch them. And even if you go to a good old-fashioned movie theater, when the credits start rolling, the lights come on and the employees come and they start sweeping under your feet, expecting you to leave because who wants to watch the credits? And yet, there is someone for whom the credits are not just not the worst part of the movie. The credits are actually the best part of the movie. And that's the person whose name is in the credits. Right? You can imagine um, you know, like a struggling actor in Los Angeles who finally gets a break being uh, a background character in some movie. So he takes his family to the premiere when it's released, and his part is so small that you know they, can, they kind of see his right shoulder in the back of a scene. But then when the credits roll, the whole family, they're sitting there on the edge of their seats, and they've they got their binoculars out, and they're watching all the names scroll, and there it is. There they see his name, and it's the best part. It's, it's, it is. That's what they've waited for, to see his name. That's what he waited for, to see his name listed and to cheer for it as it runs by in the credits. I think that's how we need to think of a passage like Nehemiah 7 um, for an ancient Israelite listening to it, right? Because it it seems so boring to us, and yet uh, while we zone out, they would have leaned in because this was about them. This was about their hometowns. This was about their family members, their ancestors. They were waiting to hear their name their city's name, their family's name, uh, that exhilarating moment that was, part, uh, that was proof that they were part of something amazing, right? That's what that moment is for, for that struggling actor or, or um, you know, that production assistant. Nobody ever knows that they work on stuff, but then they see their name, and it's proof that they're part of something amazing. And what can be more amazing than being part of God's covenant? That's what this list is about. It's about people who belong to God. And so I want you to know, friends, that if you're a Christian tonight, you are part of God's covenant, and therefore this list should actually excite you. It's about you. It's for you. This applies to you because it's about the people of God, and the church is the people of God. So it matters. It matters so much. Uh, this list of names that if you look with me, flip in your Bibles back a couple chapters to Ezra 
If you look to the beginning of the book of Ezra and look to chapter 2, we see that this list is duplicated almost word for word. We think it's boring. We zone out. And yet God, who inspired the scriptures, thought it was so important he put it in twice. So now let's read it from Ezra. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But clearly it's important to God, and so it should be important to us as well. And there are three things I think we could glean tonight, uh, principles that we can draw from a list like this that teaches us about the people of God and why it's such a blessing to belong to the people of God, what it means if you're in the people of God. So let me just give you three things. I think they should be pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, The people of God... um, are given a list like this, and a list like this is important to the people of God. First, because we learn that the people of God are a people that are being restored by God. This is about a people who are being restored by God. That's the first thing. They are not those who are cut off or abandoned. Even when it looks like they're cut off and abandoned, God promises restoration to his people, and that restoration is seen here, right? Um, The whole book of Nehemiah is about restoration. Nehemiah is going to restore the city, but a city isn't just a city if it has walls, right? Um, uh, Pripyat has walls. Do you know that, that name, Pripyat? I might be mispronouncing it. I've done a lot of that already tonight. Um, but it has walls, Pripyat. It has roads, uh, sidewalks, playgrounds. Schools, hospitals. Um, is it a city, though? Not since 1986, when all 49,000 of its residents were evacuated, when Chernobyl, less than two miles away, um, exploded and had their, um, uh, their meltdown. The nuclear radiation that was coming off and blowing over to... to Pripyat was so bad that it is now literally a ghost town. It's got walls, but no people. Nehemiah comes, he rebuilds the wall. That's what we read in chapter 6, right? Do you see that at the end of chapter 6, verse 15? So the wall was finished. Why is the book not done? Why is that not the end of Nehemiah? Well, because the restoration isn't complete. Now we need to fill those walls with people. Now, that's what happens in chapter 7. Well, why isn't the book done at chapter 7? Because there's another part of restoration, and that's an inward restoration. He's renews, Nehemiah's job is to, to renew the people, to revive the people in their, their love for God and in their worship and in their practice. So that's uh, a lot of what the second half of Nehemiah is about. Um, so now that we see the city needs citizens, and Nehemiah records for us the names of those, it says in verse 5, um, uh, who came up at the first. These were the, the first group of people to return from exile. We see that God had preserved a remnant that he restores. And he's restoring the city. I think it's a wonderful thing. We're not going to spend a whole lot of attention, but the very first thing that's mentioned in chapter 7 is about the worship of God uh, to, to set up uh, the Levites. And... Um, This is verse 1. The gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. I mean, this is is what it means to be 
part of the people of God. This is what the people of God did. They worship God. It's the first thing that we're told. Now, as the city's coming back together, let's get back to the thing that we're meant to do. It's worship. It's restoration. We're being restored to our purpose. But then when we start listing names, the very first people that are listed in verse 7 are the leaders, the leaders of the people. And how many are there? Well, you'll note in verse 7, there's actually 12 names that are listed. And um, that's not a coincidence. God had made a promise to a nation that was made up of 12 tribes, and he had not abandoned that nation. The number 12 was an indication that what God had promised to do before, he was still doing now. Uh, Scholar Derek Kidner says this, The choice of 12 was a tacit declaration that the community, community that they led was no mere rump or fragment, but actually the embodiment of the people of Israel. Is all of Israel there? No. Nehemiah, even in verse 4, expresses his discouragement of the small number, right? The city was wide and large, but the people in it were few. You can compare the total number given in Nehemiah 7 with, for example, the number of the census in Numbers chapter 1, and it is a lot smaller. So he's disappointed. But the point is, by having these 12 leaders there... um, what, what is being returned to the city or who's being returned to the city is not a, a faction of the nation, but a fraction of the nation. And there's a difference. Not a faction, but a fraction. It's not that God says, I'm just going to work now with Judah or, or with Dan. He just picks one tribe. No, he still represents the whole nation. He's doing a work of restoration for the whole nation. And that matters because, like I said, as the church, we are the people of God. We are the remnant that's receiving the promises of God's presence and salvation and grace. All of the promises. Uh, His people receive all the promises of restoration, and we're that people now. And and what does he do when he starts the church in, in the New Testament? He does the same thing that he does here. He picks 12 leaders. You remember that scene at the beginning of Acts when they say, we need to find a replacement for Judas. And they cast lots and they determine uh, Matthias would be the, the replacement. And why do they do that? Why not just go with 11? Why do they, they feel compelled to replace that, that uh, missing member? Again, they want to get back to 12. Well, why did it matter? Jesus tells us in Matthew 19 when he uh, chose the 12. He said they were to represent a renewed and restored Israel. Matthew 19, verse 28. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You all are continuing what began way back in Genesis when Jacob blessed his descendants. And so the idea is that God's plan and his promise can never be broken. He made a promise to Israel through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And even though they disobeyed and they continually broke covenant and all sorts of hardships befell them, God has not forgotten his promise. Israel is restored through these 12 men listed here. Israel is restored again through the 12 apostles. And the nations of the earth will be blessed through their ministry as it now carries on in the church, just as God had promised. And so, the 12 uh, apostles hold a real significant place in redemptive history. They're the start of the new covenant people. Uh, the Holy Spirit in Acts is, is going to be poured out not on a representation of partial Israel, 11 apostles, but on a representation of a whole Israel, 12 apostles. 
That's the same lesson that's taught in Nehemiah 7. God does not abandon his people. And even when they abandon him, he restores them. The city was rebuilt by his sovereignty. It's now being repopulated by his sovereignty. His sovereignty always leads to the restoration of his people, no matter how dire or how unrealistic that restoration might seem from our perspective. Oh, you could, you could never restore this, this back to life. You know, we have that assumption at times when we think about how terrible our life is. Oh, the Lord could never restore this work. Look at what he's doing in Nehemiah 7. Restoring an entire nation, he can restore you and me. He always keeps his promise. He, he keeps his promise to you, even when you feel like you don't deserve it. And I want to tell you that if you're ever wondering if that can be really true, Nehemiah 7 is a place to turn, in particular, verse 25. Nehemiah 7, verse 25. When you think that, God, uh, that you don't deserve God's promise and therefore he won't keep it for you, remember Nehemiah 7, 25. The sons of Gibeon, 95. Do you remember the Gibeonites? Do you remember their story? They're the ones who deceived their way into the nation. They're not Israelites by, by birth, right? They belong to, um, uh, to the, the promised land. Uh, they, were, they were Canaanites. And uh, Israel's coming into the, to the nation, conquering the nation. Joshua's just, you know, doing great work at defeating and killing all these people. And they're like, if we're going to survive, we have no chance if we're going to go up against those guys. So if we're going to survive... Let's do this. Let's, uh, let's lie to them. Let's just tell them we're poor trade workers and, and we'll ask them to have pity on us and, and maybe they'll make covenant with us. And that's what happened. They deceived Joshua and Joshua makes a covenant with them. And yet what happens? God kept that covenant that was made because the covenant, keeping the covenant, has always been about not our Honesty, not about our uprightness. It was not about our um, stalwartness that we deserve God's covenant. It's about his graciousness. And so we say, oh, they shouldn't belong in. They, you know, they deceived their way in. Oh, yeah, and you and I, we belong? No, no, no. So even when you think, oh, I could never be a part of God's people, I don't deserve it. You remember the Gibeonites who lied their way in received God's promise, and once they received it, God says, I'm never going to forsake you or leave you. And so that even when the citizen, city of Jerusalem is being repopulated, hundreds of years later, 95 Gibeonites are coming back in because they're still part of the people. God always keeps his promise to restore his people, even if you feel like you don't deserve it. You remember, Nehemiah 7, verse 25 tells me that even people who don't deserve to be in the covenant, once they're in, always stay in. Because the covenant is not about what we deserve. It's about what God delights to do. And he delights to be gracious. Amen? Um, I'm sorry. I was totally like, I, I didn't mean to preach any of that. And now I need to figure out where I am. So that was a bonus. Um, great. So the people of God are those who are being restored by God. That's very good. Okay, yeah, we're moving on to point two now. Uh, you got lucky. I almost flipped the page right to point three. <laughs> so the second thing that we learn from a list like this is that uh, the people are known to God. First, we saw they're restored by God, and now we see they're known to God. You know, the first several chapters, like the first nine chapters of Chronicles, 
is a list of literally hundreds of names recording Israel's genealogies. And why, why is that there? Why, why, why is that in, in the Bible? Chronicles was written around this same time, during the time of the exile. And so for a history book written for people who were not in their own land, it was really important for them to know that God hadn't forgotten them. In fact, not had he only not forgotten them, he wrote, wrote their names in his book. And something very similar is happening here. The names of the people now returning from exile uh, back to the country are listed. They're listed in Ezra 2. They're listed in Nehemiah 7. And passages like this that initially read as dry as dirt come to life uh, for us when we realize what God is communicating to his people by recording their names. He's speaking to each and every individual listed here, every tribe listed here, or the the residents of a, a particular city listed here, and he's saying, I see you, I know you, and I have a place for you. The people of God are known by God. Even look at verses 33 and 34. I, I love that little detail there. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. God knows his people. He doesn't get confused uh, about what's going on with you or your life, even when you have a last name that's as common as Smith. Like he's able to keep track, even if you're a John, right? And there's millions of Johns. God knows everyone. And the other Elam, he says. He knows Elam and the other Elam. It's like, you know, grade school. Sarah S. and Sarah K. God keeps track of his people. He knows them by name. I think we often feel slighted by others or underappreciated in life. Sometimes that's due to an overinflated sense of of ego, a prideful sense of our own importance. But other times, let's just be honest, it's because we truly are slighted in life and we really are overlooked and we really are forgotten. That happens in life. Uh, We're passed up for a promotion at work, even though we deserve it, even though we've truly earned it and worked hard for it, but we've just actually been neglected by the boss. Uh, We've been maybe neglected by our parents, even though our siblings receive plenty of attention and affirmation. Maybe you've ever, have you ever been left out by a gathering of friends and you're thinking, well, at least I thought we were friends and then you're seeing what they're all doing on Instagram and you never received an invite and now you're thinking maybe we're not friends after all. That hurts, doesn't it? And sometimes it's not just people but entire systems that that fail us and neglect us, a justice system, maybe even the church at times. Uh, You felt that from the church, like the, the entire leadership or the entire body just doesn't know what's going on in your life and nobody's ever reached out, nobody's ever asked. That hurts. Here's where a boring passage of scripture, though, can warm your heart when you feel like everybody and everyone has failed you and forgotten you. God never forgets his people, and God never fails his people. And the reason that God never fails his people is because he never forgets them. He knows our needs. And because he's omniscient, he'll never forget our needs. He, he keeps a record of our tossings. He's got a diary that he writes down every one of your sleepless nights. And he's got a little, if you can, you know, if it's not uh, too disrespectful, just if you could picture, as it were, God having a nightstand. On that nightstand, he's, he has a diary in which he writes down all of your sleepless nights. 
And then, you know, thinking in my nightstand, okay, I got a book, and then I also always have a glass of water. He has a glass there, but what is he putting in that glass? Every single one of your tears, every one of your sorrows. What does God keep right at hand, right there at his nightstand? A book of your sufferings, a bottle of your tears. Why? To show you and to show me that he never forgets. He knows what we're going through. Did you know that Jesus said that this is the very thing that's meant to give us the deepest joy in all the world? In Luke 10, you can turn there if you'd like, in Luke 10, uh, verse... Uh, 17 and following, the disciples have just come back from their very first missions trip, and they've seen some impressive things. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Uh, they've experienced ministry success and, and fame. That's their report. But what is Jesus' response? He says, don't get too excited about that. Don't get excited about ministry success. Don't get carried away with the fact that people are talking about you and they think you're all that. Because that kind of stuff can come and go. He says instead to rejoice in the one thing that can never change or be taken away from you. And it's in verse 20. Rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. So is that your source of rejoicing, Christian? Is it that you are known by God, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Um, Don't look to be the star of the show. That's Jesus. He's the star of the show. But rejoice that he's allowed your names to be in uh, the credits of the movie that he stars in. You're part of his story. He welcomes you in to be a part of his story. There's a promise that we read of in 2 Timothy 2.19. The Lord knows those who are his. Take that to heart. Uh, The list in Nehemiah shows what's at stake, though. When it comes to having our names known by God, there there is a lot at stake. And verse 61, I think, is where that really comes out. So back to Nehemiah. uh, Chapter 7, verse 61. The following were those who came up from Talmalah, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer. But they could not prove their father's house nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. There's some speculation here. Why couldn't they prove this? Were the people lying about being uh, part of Israel? Were they truly Israelites and they just had, you know, um, they were bad at keeping records of their family's ancestry? The authorities cannot say. And so they say we have to wait for a priest who can uh, consult with the will of the Lord. That's what the, the Urim and the Thummim is. There was... Essentially, three ways in which Israel could know the will of God. One would be if a prophet spoke it to them. Another would be if there was a dream or a vision. But then the third way is actually in the priestly office. You remember the high priest had these two stones, the Urim and the Thummim, and uh, he would reach into his into his apron, and when he'd pull one out, that was kind of give. If he pulled out the one, it was a yes. If he pulled out the other, it was a no. And so they're saying, we don't know if you belong. We need to wait for a high priest who is invested with with that uh, ability. We don't have one right now to come and to discern God's will if you really belong. And so because they couldn't prove it, though, there were restrictions. Those who wanted to be in the priesthood, it says they could not act in that office. Verse 64, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Now, what matters most is being written in God's book. 
That, do not forget that. That is what I'm saying tonight. What matters most is that your names are written in the book of heaven. But we see there's an important correlation between the book in heaven uh, and the book of God's people here on earth. Uh, let me put this in today's terms. What, what does it mean for an individual to claim Christ but never join a church? Uh, who, who won't be willing to register among God's people? Are, are they a Christian still if they're not willing to join a church? Are they saved? Well, they very well may be. But it's reasonable for somebody to ask, somebody to say, there's no record of you belonging to God's people, so why should we think you belong to God at all? I mean, that's what they're saying here in Nehemiah. There's no record of you belonging to God's people, and belonging to God's people is a sign you belong to God. They're extrapolating from the lesser to the greater. Christians have understood for nearly 2,000 years, until really just like two or three decades ago, That if you care for God, you will care for his people. If you love Christ, you'll love his body, the church. You will love the thing that Christ loves more than anything else in the world. That is the church. And so if you have no interest in being registered with the church, with other Christians, with the body of Christ, with the people of God, you should question seriously why you should receive the blessings and the inheritance that's promised exclusively to the church, to the people of God. That's the logic that's behind Nehemiah 7. I think we see a corollary with the church today. If you have no interest in the people, if there's no record of you being with the people, how can we know, how can we know that you belong to God? It's not to say that, that they don't, but the question is how can we know, right? And the Christian wants people to know. Right? The one who's been saved wants the whole world to know. And Jesus says, if you're willing to stand up and confess me before other men, then I'll stand up before my Father and I'll confess you before him. Well, a final point here briefly. Uh, the people uh, of God are those who, who are restored by God, they're known to God, and they're finally they are waiting for God. Uh, just because they're returning to their home, this chapter in no way smacks of triumphalism like, yeah, we did it, we're amazing. Quite the opposite. We already said verse 4. Uh, Nehemiah is pretty disappointed. We're given the total in verse 66. The total of people who returned, 42,360. Just so nobody asks me later, no, that's actually not the total. If you add up every single number that's given in the chapter, you get actually 31,089. Uh, but the total, 42,360, is the same number that's found in Ezra 2, even though when you add up those numbers, you get something else, like 35,000. Uh, and so the point is, uh, we're not sure how we come to that total, but we're, we're pretty certain the total is correct because it shows up in both Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7. Uh, maybe women aren't counted here, or children, um, or maybe just some families are listed and some families aren't. But the point is that 42,000 is what comes back to... Um, uh, to Israel in the first. Now, think of that number, 42,360 people. If that many people showed up this, this uh, coming fall at a Michigan game, it would be newsworthy for how pathetic of a turnout it was. You know, the big house holds 107,000 people. 107,000. Um, Beaver Stadium where I'm from, State College, become, Beaver Stadium becomes the third largest city in Pennsylvania on game day when Penn State has a game. 
Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Beaver Stadium. And here we have 42,000 people in Israel. This is small potatoes in the world's eyes, and yet isn't it wonderfully comforting to know that God cares about a number like that? Uh, Right around this same time, um, the prophet Zechariah preached to the people this message, that the one who despised the day of small things would soon rejoice. That that number, 42,000, is not far off from the entire number of membership in the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I pulled out my good old General Assembly yearbook and looked up the number at our last year's GA. It was reported that our denomination has 32,255 members, so about 10,000 less than listed here in Nehemiah 7. So does the world care about the OPC? No. Does the world care about Israel? No. They don't care about, you know, the PCA, which has like a, a... half a million members. I mean, they don't care about the SBC, which has like 10 million members. The world doesn't care about God's people. What matters, though, what we learn here is that God cares about his people. What seems small and pathetic, Zechariah is saying, what seems small and pathetic now won't be soon. And you just have to wait on God to see that transformation. And that's what the people do here. They're waiting on the Lord and they're waiting in the Lord. That's expressed in the, the generous giving that's recorded for us at the end of the chapter. You know, if you, you would think after that number, 42,360, you would think everybody would be kind of depleted and defeated and just want to go home and, and weep. And yet, no, they, they give and they give a lot, we're told in verses 70 uh, through 72. How is it that they'd be inclined to give much of their resources to such a small endeavor? Well, they're putting their money where their faith is. They're not giving to what Israel looks like now, but what God has promised Israel will become. They're waiting for God to do something amazing, and their giving is an expression of that. And we have, you know, we have the opportunity to do almost something that's like the exact same. Next week, we start this uh, once a month in the mornings. We'll take up an offering for our building fund. And we think, why should I give to this? You know, things can't can't get big, and I don't mean numerically, I mean like we, we think like, what could God possibly do with, I got five bucks to give, what could God possibly do with that? Well, we should give with the same sort of motivation that the people have here. Because we're not giving, because we're so assured of our agenda with the building project, or we're so proud of how big we are, not because we can discern every step of the way. We give in faith because of what God can and will do. And we believe in him, we trust in him. We, we believe that the day of small things will become the day of big things, and we want to be a part of that. We, we believe that the people of God are those who are restored by God, and we want more people to be restored by God. We believe the people of God are those who are known by God. We want more people to be known by God. We want growth in all these areas, and so we give, even though right now we think, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're no radiant, we're no uh, valley church, and all these big ones, you know, what could, poss- what could God possibly do? Well, be careful if you say that about God. He can show you he can do amazing things. And this is the promise from the scriptures. Those who wait on the Lord will never be put to shame. And so what are we waiting for? Friends, we're waiting for God. That's what Nehemiah and his people are waiting for. I think of the number that returned to Israel was 20 times the size, 200 times the size. It would still feel empty because God wasn't there. Right? That's really what they're waiting for. 
And that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for a time when the dwelling place of God is with man. That's not going to happen here. That's in the next life. It's in the next world. So the church is made up of waiting people. The church is made up of faithful people, of a giving people, and a praying people. Let's do that now. Father, we thank you for your word and what it teaches us about belonging to the church, belonging to your people, and how you love to work through a remnant to bring amazing restoration. Uh, we, we would wait on you now, oh God, to show us the way that we as your church should go, uh, trusting that you'll never lead us astray, trusting that you'll never leave us, trusting that you'll never fail us because you never forget us. Our names are written on the palm of your hand. Um, and even eternity cannot erase that. We are forever yours. And we thank you that an obscure chapter in the Old Testament with a bunch of difficult to pronounce names can teach us that heart-assuring message that we are known by you. And indeed, to be known by you is to know you. And to know you is everlasting life. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.